We have been, uh, this is, this is Pentecost Sunday. I don't know if any of you have been paying attention and uh, following the liturgical calendar, but it's Pentecost. And if you don't know what that is, we're going to talk a little bit more about that today. Um, for some of you who are just starting with us, um, we've been doing the lead up to Pentecost. Pentecost is counted from Easter Sunday, and it's 49 days plus one. Seven weeks of seven, seven times seven, the symbolic number for spiritual perfection times spiritual perfection, and the following day is Pentecost, which gives 50, which is what Pentecost means. But the significance of it spiritually is what we want to talk about. And this time of counting, this 49 days plus one, seven weeks of seven, is a time of preparation. And we have been doing that for the last few Sundays. How do we prepare? What does it all mean? Now that we're here, I want to talk about it again in a little bit different way and kind of come at it sideways like I like to do and see if we can take a little journey together here this morning. I have a book on my shelf. It's called The Hard Sayings of Jesus. And it's just that. It's 70 different sayings of Jesus that are either contradictory, seemingly, paradoxical, um, they can be just nonsensical, or they can just be idiomatic in the sense that we just don't know what they mean. And so it's so difficult for us to understand. When someone tells you, just go read the Bible, all your answers are there. Well, it's not that easy, is it? Because we have to parse through difficult sayings that make no sense to us in this culture two to 4,000 years later, different languages, and everything that goes into an ancient text being read by modern eyes. And so there's 70 of these sayings that this particular scholar parses and brings out and tries to connect with us. But one of the hardest sayings in the entire Bible for me is not in his book. And so I want to talk about that one a little bit right now. It's actually John 14, 12. And I know Brandon's going to put it up because he's just that good. And truly, truly, I say to you, the one who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also, and greater works than these he will do, because I go to the Father. Now, you've got to think about that for a second. Here's Jesus telling us, if we believe in him, we're going to do the works that he does, and greater works than these. What does that even mean? Now, when you go and you look at scholars in the normal Western Christian tradition, they're going to equate those works with his miracles, the healing miracles, the physical miracles, walking on water and such. And Jesus is saying we're going to do those. And then he says we're going to do greater than those. How can you do greater than walking on water and healing people? So they understand the greater as not being in quality but in quantity, that we're going to do more. They're going to talk about it in terms of duration. We're going to do it for a longer period of time. And so the idea is that the followers of Jesus reached more people than Jesus himself did in his lifetime for a longer period of time than Jesus did. But it still comes down to those miracles, to understanding that. And then he says, because I go to the Father. This is all going to happen because he goes to the Father. Now, that is usually understood as him being an intercessor for us. He, with the Father, is going to intercede and make things happen on our behalf. He also said that when he goes, that the Spirit will come, the Helper will come. And so that Helper will be here for us. But that begs a question, was the Helper not here before? Was God's Spirit not here before? Did something change before and after this Pentecost moment? 
lots of questions that need to be answered, and we're going to go through these. What he's talking about here is something that we need to take a look at because we can miss the main points of ancient scripture, of sacred scripture, if we take it too literally. If we take the scriptures literally, if we take them too literally, then we're going to miss the primary point that scripture is trying to make. The Bible is a spiritual book. It's going to be looking at life from a spiritual point of view. And so it's using physical details in order to get across spiritual truths and spiritual principles. But the spiritual principles are always going to be more important. They're going to be the primary truth that the Bible is trying to convey. And we're going to miss that if we're looking at things too literally. So if you think spiritually, what is it that Jesus primarily did? What did he do? Yes, he did all those miracles. He did all those works. Primarily, though, what he did and what he told us to do is to love. To love one another. When he was getting ready to go to the cross, what did he say at John 13, starting at verse 34? I give you a new commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also should love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. This is a theme throughout the Gospels, but I think he states it most clearly right here. And he makes it really clear. It's love that defines us as a follower. It's love that defines us as one of his own. Everything else is kind of commentary. Everything else reinforces that love. It's love that defines us and not our doctrine. And that is a key thing for us to understand. And Jesus demonstrates this all through his life, all through his ministry. Think about how Jesus operated. He was constantly breaking ethnic barriers, right? He was sent to the Jews. He admits his main mission is to the Jews. But when a Roman comes to him, a Roman centurion, he doesn't send him away. In fact, he's absolutely astounded. He's amazed at the faith that the centurion has, and he heals his servant, he uses a Samaritan hated by the Jews at that time as one of the heroes of his story about what neighbor really means. And when he goes to the well in Samaria and meets a Samaritan woman, he connects with her. He talks with her. When he goes to Syrophoenicia at the coast, what is now probably present-day Lebanon, and he meets a Canaanite woman who has a need, he spars with her a little bit, but he connects with her and he heals her daughter. Always breaking these ethnic barriers, showing that there is something larger than tribe. There is something larger than just blood and family. He's always breaking legal barriers. If you think about that one, there is a group that the, uh, the Pharisees and the religious leaders of Jesus' day called Am Haaretz in Hebrew. It meant people of the land. It was an idiomatic expression that meant people who stood wildly outside the law. They didn't follow the law, and so they were off. They were shunned. They were, there was a caste system, and they were not at the top of the caste. So Jesus is connecting with tax collectors. He's collect, connecting with prostitutes. He's connecting with everyone who needs his help, regardless of where they stand legally. This makes him unclean. This makes him suspect in the minds of the religious authorities. But he continues to break those legal barriers 
adulterers, anything who comes to him, Jesus will connect. He breaks ritual and social barriers. A leper comes to him, and he touches the leper before he heals him. To touch a leper made him ritually unclean. He needed to go outside the community and go through the cleaning process. But he doesn't, he's not afraid. He's not afraid of the disease, first of all, and he's not afraid of the social implications. He touches him, and then he heals him. When a paralytic is lowered down through the roof, he calls him son, connects with him first. Even though a paralytic or anyone with any kind of infirmity would be seen as being out of God's favor in that culture. And Jesus connects with them, breaking these ritual and social barriers. He connected with women. Men were not supposed to talk to women in public. Jesus does it. Women were second-class citizens in that culture. Jesus elevates them just in the way that he treats them, the way that he treats them seriously. Children. Hebrew men were not supposed to play with kids in public. They could play with their own in private. But Jesus, you can imagine, rolling around in the streets and playing with these kids, you know, breaking these boundaries, these social and ritual boundaries. Jesus is trying to show us something here. This love is larger than you can imagine. When Jesus says, I love, and you love as I love, if you want to be a follower, he's saying we need to graduate from our tribes, graduate from our sense of what our place is, and enter this borderless, this caste-less liminal space. We talk a lot about liminal space here, the space between spaces, the space on the threshold, in, in, the, in the threshold of the doorway. To move into that space between tribes, between these points of demarcation, the ones that we usually separate people with. Jesus is saying, you got to see all sides. You need to love all sides. Make choices from this threshold for the good and the best of everyone, not just your tribe. And so doing Jesus' works is going to be loving this way, primarily. Out of that love is going to flow all sorts of behavior. Out of that love can flow the miracles, but it's the love that animates everything. It's the love that is primary. Jesus is talking about, if you trust me, if you believe in me, but belief is never separated from trust in Hebrew and Aramaic. If you believe in me, then you will do the works that I do. You will be able to love this way, to become fearlessly vulnerable enough to show up to those that traditionally are your enemy. An enemy only means someone from your, not from your tribe, from a different tribe. It could be an adversary, but it's just someone that you don't understand. They have different cultures. They're not your blood. If you can love there, he says, everything else falls into place. These are the works that we can do, and greater works than these. If it's duration and if it's quantity, fine. But focusing spiritually on the love is the key. So today is Pentecost. Pentecost is the story of how we get to this place. How do we get to the place where we can love as Jesus loves, to do the works that Jesus does, to be as fearly, fearlessly vulnerable as we need to be to those who don't seem safe? How do we get there? How do we do it? Pentecost is the story of how we get there. If we read it spiritually, if we don't take it too literally, 
We talked a little bit about Pentecost. The word literally means 50th. It's a Greek word because it's the 50th day. Originally, it was the commemoration of Shavuot, which is the Hebrew pilgrimage festival that follows 50 days after Pesach or Passover. The two were connected. The Pentecost, the Shavuot, which in the Jewish mind is the day and the commemoration of the spiritual liberation, the spiritual liberation of the people as they were leaving Egypt. For a Jew, spiritual liberation is salvation. It's right here and right now. And so the spiritual liberation of Jesus' first followers on this day, on Pentecost, is connected with that larger social memory, that cultural memory of Shavuot. But Shavuot and Pentecost are one and the same. Fifty days after, the disciples found their liberation. They were able to move into this space that Jesus was talking about and were able to love the way he loved, to become fearlessly vulnerable, and it reflects in everything that they're doing. Okay, so to give you a little backstory, how are we going to get to this day? After the crucifixion, the disciples were terrified, and they scattered, right? They all went back. Remember Peter saying, I'm going fishing. Well, he's just not going fishing. What is he doing? He's going back to the Galilee to pick up his old life. He figures, this life is over. I thought we had something going here with Jesus, but I guess it's over. So I'm going to go home, and I'm going to pick up my old life. As a fisherman, that means he's going back fishing again. And so they're picking up their former lives and wherever they were from, typically in the Galilee. Now, Shavuot is a pilgrimage festival. It's one of three in Hebrew culture. That means that every male was supposed to go back to Jerusalem to take care of the ritual practices at the temple itself. Now, either the disciples went back of their own accord or they were called and gathered. We don't really know from the scripture. But they all came back to Jerusalem shortly before Shavuot, right after the crucifixion. So we're talking about 40 days after the crucifixion and resurrection. Now, Jesus, who is risen at this point, gathers them all probably at Mount Olivet. There's a little discrepancy there. Were they, were they in Bethany or were they in Olivet? Most scholars think they're near Olivet, which is only about a mile from Jerusalem, from the, from the city walls. And as they're all gathered together here in this outdoor space, Jesus promises them again that the helper is going to come. The spirit is going to come. And he tells them not to leave. Stay right here. Stay right in Jerusalem until that happens, until something happens. You know, they don't know what it's going to be, but they obey. They're staying there. And then after he's finished talking to them, he ascends into heaven and is covered by a cloud. Now, the scripture tells us that he go, they all go back to Jerusalem and they're rejoicing in what is happening. They spent a lot of their time in the temple. They spent more of their time in the upper room that they rented. But when it comes to Shavuot, when it comes to Pentecost, they're all together in one place. And we don't exactly know where that is. Might have been in that upper room. It could have been someplace else, but they're all together. And they're all in one accord, the scripture tells us. And so here we are set up for Acts 2. Starting right at verse 1, what actually happened on Pentecost, that first Pentecost? When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as of fire distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them. 
And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. Now there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. And the reason that they were there is because they had all come from all over the eastern Mediterranean and North Africa to be in Jerusalem for that pilgrimage festival. And when the sound occurred, the crowd came together and were bewildered because each one of them was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Why are not all of these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we each hear them in our own language to which we were born? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the districts of Libya around Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them in our own tongue speaking of the mighty deeds of God. And they all continued in amazement and great perplexity, saying to one another, what does this mean? Now, others were mocking and saying, they are full of sweet wine. They're just drunk. But Peter, taking his stand with the eleven, raised his voice and declared to them, men of Judea and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give heed to my words. For these men are not drunk, as you suppose, for it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken through the prophet Joel. And it shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth my spirit on all mankind, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall dream dreams, see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Skipping to verse 22. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. This man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. Skipping to verse 36. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and, and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. All right, that was a long reading. But the main thing I want you to focus on is Peter. Who is this Peter? It's almost like, what have you done with Peter? Who are you and what have you done with Peter? Because this is not the guy I know. I mean, where did that come from? Where did that speech come from? Where did the chutzpah come from for him to stand up like that and say the things that he said? This is not the same guy who denied Jesus three times who was terrified at the crucifixion, who ran and hid, and then eventually went home to his former life because he figured everything was over. What happened to Peter? It was something unlike anything that he had experienced before, obviously. But think about Peter's experiences with Jesus. Think about the shape of his connection with Jesus. First thing is he meets him. He meets him on the shore of the Galilee. His brother Andrew brings Jesus to him. And he immediately decides at that moment something in Jesus, something in the preparation of his own life in the backwater of the Galilee, 
that he needs to follow this man. He drops his nets, which is symbolic of dropping everything about his former life, and follows Jesus. He goes to the river and is baptized in water and radically changes his lifestyle. We don't really know what the first followers did. Did they go out for a while and follow Jesus and then come back and, and you know, fend for their families and do what they needed to do to be responsible for their families? Because Jesus, I mean, Peter was married. He had a family. Most of them did. So how did they manage that? We don't know. But we do know that it radically changed the way that they were living their lives, radically changed the commitment that they had. He becomes what they called in his language a Talmud. Means disciple, means follower, but not in any way that we understand that word. To be a Talmud meant that you completely left your own identity behind in favor of imprinting everything of the master on yourself. And they did. They ate and lived and slept and followed and and listened and learned, but they were imprinting Jesus on themselves. He watches and he listens and he learns and he mentally agrees with what Jesus is saying, but it's really obvious that he doesn't understand it, you know. He witnesses the signs that Jesus does. He witnesses the healings. But the scripture shows us that he's still thinking tribally. He's still thinking physically. He's still thinking literally. Because even at the end, as we're moving into Holy Week, into the Passion, into the Crucifixion, he and the rest are all jockeying for power. They're trying to figure out who's going to get to sit on Jesus' right and left hand. Who's going to be the main power brokers when he actually comes into his physical kingdom? They still thought he was that Messiah who was going to kick out the Romans and establish a sovereign Israel. And this was their ticket to the big time. They're jockeying for power. He uses violence. He cuts off the ear of the high priest's servant in the garden when he thinks that his master is being threatened and this whole image of his kingdom and his chance for power is being threatened. And, of course, Jesus puts him down. But he attacks who he sees as his enemy. He's still thinking in terms of Israel versus Rome, in terms of political power. He's still thinking about the Jews versus Samaritans and other ethnic groups in terms of ethnic purity. And he's still thinking in terms of ritual and social purity. He's one of the ones who is outraged when they find Jesus talking to that Samaritan woman by the well. They had gone into town for provisions. They come back. They see him talking to not just a woman, but a Samaritan woman. That breaks all the rules. They're outraged. He's still thinking in this limited way. He's terrified after the crucifixion. He denies Jesus. He doesn't believe that he's risen when Mary comes back and tells him. And then he doesn't recognize him when he sees him. This is the Peter that we know. Not this Peter who stands up with this boldness and this ability to be fearlessly vulnerable in front of people he doesn't even know. Amazing, this transformation. Now, Jesus said that it's to your advantage that I go because the helper will come. And the helper is God's spirit. But we asked the question before and didn't really answer it. Does that mean that God's spirit wasn't there before Jesus went? Does that mean the helper came on a specific day? Does that mean that God withholds his presence and his spirit and doles it out when the 
situation is right until we have done certain things? See, that's not the case. That's not what Jesus is showing us. The scripture tells us God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. There is no difference. What is now has always been and will always be in terms of God's presence. God's filling this room right now. If we're tuned in, we'll pick up the broadcast. If not, it'll be invisible to us. But there is no place that we can go that God hasn't preceded us. No place we can go to outrun God's presence. I love Brother Lawrence. He said, even if I end up in hell, he said, I know that my God's presence will make it heaven. How can you make a statement like that? Only someone who has experienced the allness of God's presence, that it's always there, wherever you are, understands that. Jesus isn't talking about the helper not being here before. He's talking idiomatically, of course. It's an idiomatic way of speaking because it's impossible for God's presence not to be. But what he is saying is that Peter isn't ready to see God's presence. Peter isn't ready to connect with God's presence. Why? Because he's still thinking tribally and physically and literally and legally And it keeps him from seeing what is right in front of your face. But Jesus said, like the wind, what you can't see. You see its effects. It's just like when Jesus was talking to Nicodemus at John 3. And he's talking about the second birth that he has to have. And Nicodemus says, what do you mean? i got to crawl back into my mother's womb and be born again? See what it means? Thinking tribally, physically, literally. You can almost imagine Jesus smacking his head and saying, it's a metaphor, Nick. <laughs> you know? Ah, can't see it. Can't see it because you're so limited in the way and you're so ingrained in the way of thinking. This is what Jesus means. You aren't ready yet, but if I go, you will become ready. That's what he's trying to say. It's a process. Backing up, John the Baptist baptized with water, and then he says, but there's one coming who will baptize with fire and with spirit. When Jesus is talking to Nicodemus in that same conversation, he's talking about two baptisms, one of water and one of spirit, and you need them both. With just one of them, you can still be thinking tribally and physically and literally. That's the baptism that they all have had. They were all baptized into their faith. And then the followers of Jesus were baptized again, but they still have not got through to that next breakthrough. Jesus calls that second baptism, the baptism of spirit, he calls that being born again. It is like a second birth. It is so transformative. It changes things so much. It's like being born again. Peter was baptized in water, and he made that declaration. He made that dedication to a new path in his life. There's repentance, which simply means a change of direction. We add the remorse and the guilt and everything to the understanding of that word, but really all it means is you were going this way and you're going off a cliff. Now you're going to turn and go this way so you don't go off the cliff. He made that repentance. He made that change. He started living a completely different way of living his life, and he followed all the external rules and all of the commands and all the structure that was given to him, both by his faith Judaism and also by Jesus He followed that. He was doing a good job. 
It was a necessary first step for him to take, but it was only the beginning of his journey because he was still thinking tribally. He was still focused outward, physically, and thinking dualistically how things are separate from one another. But eventually, and life will always do this for you, so you don't have to worry. <laughs> life will always remove from you the outward and tribal focus of your faith. It will be removed one way or another. And it's usually some trauma that you face. It's usually some great pain that you face. And suddenly you realize that everything that you believed, everything that you had sold out to, everything that you had relied on is no longer adequate to deal with your pain no longer adequate to deal with the questions that your pain is asking in the deepest parts of your spirit. Every one of us, if we haven't already, is going to go through this process, and not just once, but over and over again. Because whatever we come up with as a new structure, a new belief system out of the last trauma, is going to be tested again in the next trauma. And this is how we grow. This is the growth. For Peter, Jesus was the outward focus of his faith. Jesus was everything to me. It's where he hung his hat. This is why Jesus said, you are going to be able to do greater works than mine because I go to the Father, because my presence will be removed from you. As long as Jesus was the be-all and end-all of Peter's faith, he couldn't think beyond that. But when Jesus is removed, then everything changes. For Abraham, Isaac was the external focus of his faith. Isaac was the miracle child. Isaac was the way in which his progeny was going to become a great nation. That's what was promised to him, that he would be the father of multitudes. But he had no child. When Isaac is born, Isaac becomes the external focus of his faith that wonderful scene of him being told to sacrifice his son. Again, metaphor. It is the moment that Isaac was, that Abraham was finally able to let go of Isaac as the external focus of his faith and see that something deeper actually existed. It was his spiritual liberation. It was his release. And he realized that his children, his multitude, his great nation was not going to be by blood. It was going to be by this faith. And everything changed. For the Hebrews, as they were leaving Egypt, the external focus of their faith was Moses. Moses was the be-all and end-all of their salvation and their redemption. And that's why Moses could not go with them into the promised land. He needed to be removed so that the people could realize the type of connection that they could actually have as a nation to their God, and they established a pure theocracy for a little while. But Moses would have been in the way. Moses would have limited their thinking, just as Isaac limited Abraham's thinking, just as Jesus was limiting Peter's thinking and all of the first followers. But Jesus' death, that traumatic event, toppled everything that Peter thought he knew everything he thought that he was following. And then he began to slowly realize that Jesus was still alive, but in a different way. 
and his eyes began to open inward to a new connection, a new type of faith. You see, Pentecost is the mark of the second baptism on us. Pentecost is the mark of this second birth that changes everything, changes the way that we think, the way that we process, the way that we experience. It's the baptism in fire and spirit. And because it's one moment recorded in Scripture, does that mean it's going to be one moment for us, that suddenly all this happens? Does that mean that it was one moment for them in terms of everything happening? See, what Scripture does, what sacred Scripture does, in trying to deal with spirit, has to point the way. Spirit can't be expressed and transmitted directly to anybody. Scripture has to use all of the metaphor and figures of speech and everything to try to evoke a response, to evoke an experience in us that is the analog of what that person, that writer, that author, that tribe experienced in their relationship with God. And so Scripture is compressed. Scripture uses these figures of speech and uses symbols to try to get something across to us to try to get us to understand what is really happening here. Pentecost can be a gradual awakening. And that is the way that it's usually experienced, probably always experienced. But there is a moment where we finally hit maybe that magic 51% mark, where suddenly more often than not we are there. We have changed our character but it is symbolic. It is compressed. We can't put the, the pressure on us to think that there is a moment where suddenly a switch is going to get flipped and everything is going to be as fearless as it is appearing here in Scripture for these followers of Jesus. But they got there, and that's the important thing. They were able to have a gradual awakening, and I guarantee you it was longer than 50 days. Jesus has 18 unaccounted for years in his life. And yet his wilderness experience is described as 40 days, a symbolic number that means time of trial and testing, initiation into a rebirth. Paul said that he spent 14 years after his Damascus experience before he started his first missionary journey, went into Arabia, had to process, had to have the kind of awakening that we're talking about before he was ready to take his place. Jesus, same thing had to have his time before he could take his place. More than 50 days. But then eventually you reach this point where you graduate beyond tribal limitations, graduate beyond just the mere following of law, and you move into the place that James beautifully calls the law of liberty. What an oxymoron, right? The law of liberty, where we think of law as being restriction, but suddenly the law becomes liberty. How does that happen? It happens when you become so one with God. We always talk about God's will, but what does it really mean in Aramaic? It means delight, desire, pleasure, deepest purpose. That's God's will. When we take as much delight and as much pleasure in the things that God does, if my 16-year-old son loved homework so much, that he was following my command to do his homework? Is he really following me anymore? He's doing what the heck he wants to do. It just 
coincides. And I'm happy and he's happy. But are we really following anymore? When we become one with God's delight, desire, deepest purpose, so much that everything that we do looks like law, that's the law of liberty. We're not following law anymore. We're doing what we want to do. Augustine, love God and do as you please. In the wrong hands, recipe for disaster. In the right hands, it's the law of liberty. Everything changes at that point. Our heart, our mind, at one with God. And what lies between Easter and Pentecost? Between this first and second baptism? Between what we have talked about as the first and second halves of life? The first half of life being building the external platform until you get to the midlife crisis that asks the question, is this all there is? And then moving into the second half of life where the eyes are turned inward and we find true meaning and purpose in an inward way. What lies between the first and second half of life? What lies between stage two and stage four of the spiritual growth that we talked about? Stage two being based in the group and stage four being based in ultimate connection. The wilderness does. The wilderness lies between the first and the second baptism, first and second birth, first and second halves of life, because the trauma of the loss of the exterior object of our faith is what finally reveals to us the belief is inadequate and something else needs to take its place. At that point, we've got two choices. We can double down and we can scurry back Kind of like the child who runs from mom's lap into the surf and is when the wave is receding and when the wave comes back in, runs back to mom's lap. We can do that. We can run back to the group. We can run back to the old systems. We can try to rebuild the walls of our fortress around us if we want to. Back to the security. Or we can continue to move out. We've already been kicked out of the nest. Some of the work has already been done for us. We're a far ways down the path already. But it feels risky, and it feels scary. But if we will continue on, if we will now focus inward, if we will focus on unseen God, rather just than just on the material and the tribal, everything will start to change at that point. Not immediately, but if we can accept the risk of the unknown, this is what will take us to that second birth. And if we will do that, we start experiencing life in ways that will start to make sense to us when we hear Jesus talk or anybody talk about these kinds of spiritual experiences where the language falls off and we can only point. Jesus said, those who are now baptized in the Spirit, these people are like the wind. You don't know where they're coming from. You don't know where they're going to. But you hear the sound of it. You see the effects of it. Can we start living life in this way? Anchored to, connected to, having faith and trust in something that we can't see. We will never be able to prove. We will never have adequate evidence to transfer to anybody else. But that grounds us in such a way that we begin to see the effects of it in our life. That changes everything. To start to live by trust instead of clarity we all just crave clarity because it feels like something for something. It feels like some kind of security, some kind of solidity. 
can we let go of that and find that trust is far greater than clarity in being able to order our lives in new directions, to make us fearlessly able to remain open and vulnerable and connecting and loving in situations that don't feel safe, with people who don't feel safe? Can we still give to them? Can we still allow them in to the extent that discernment allows? Can we drop the defenses of our tribe and accept the vulnerability of living outside the camp, <sighs> loving everyone, loving everyone and everything and every camp. The second baptism that we're talking about, this, this new realization of the way life is lived, puts us squarely in this liminal space that we've been talking about, in the doorway between this and that, free to pass through to either side, not necessarily a full citizen of either side, but able to pass, just as Jesus was able to pass through walls and move to either side. Another metaphorical way of trying to understand that Jesus had changed in a way, or is it a literal truth? Is it both? We don't know. But what I can tell you is that the most important thing that is being conveyed here is the spiritual truth. To be in that liminal space, to be able to literally, not literally, to be able to spiritually pass through walls. The barriers that used to limit you, the ethnic barriers, the political barriers, the legal barriers, the social and ritual barriers, no longer hold you. You're free to move about the room. Amazing. That kind of freedom is the law of liberty. That kind of freedom is exactly what Jesus is talking about. And when he says you'll know the truth and the truth will make you free, you are not bound by these things unless you agree to be bound by these things. Pentecost is a story of how we get to do the things that Jesus did from this spiritual point of view and break through these tribal and physical and literal boundaries to love everything and everyone as we love ourselves, as we love our own tribe, and to see past everything that looks different, everything that makes enemy out of people, places, and things, things that seem to us unsafe, and begin to see that which makes us the same, the unseen spirit that glues us all and holds us all together. This is what Pentecost is, if we will allow it to be. Right now, in this room, although you can't see it, there is a tongue of fire over each one of your heads. It's there. It's always been there. And it will always be there. The only question is, are you ready to see it? Are you ready to lean into it? Are you ready to accept all of the implications and the changes in your life that will result from leaning in and seeing that fire. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for Pentecost. Thank you for the millennia-old liturgy of the church that creates a structure for us, that we can see the progression of our lives in spiritual formation, lived out in the community. 
And even if we're not really aware of the liturgy, help us to become more and more aware of the milestones in our lives that the liturgy represents, of the stages of our growth, the stages of our connection to you, to recognize the barriers that we have erected for ourselves so that we can more and more see that they do not hold us unless we think they do. We want to become more and more of a free people, Lord, in you. We want to see the world as you do, as just one thing with many moving parts so that we can freely move through and just love and be present wherever we go. Nothing creating moments that seem insignificant. Nothing that creates a moment that we need to add something or take away something to make it what we want it to be. Help us to be that kind of people, Lord. Immersed, accepting, and fearlessly vulnerable. And this Pentecost, let it focus us more on the desire to do what we need to do to get there, to do the things that you do. Thank you, Father, for your love and your constancy. Never let us forget, we can only love because you loved us first. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand.